I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Go ahead and name an NFL moment. Any moment. Vito Stellino, he was there. And he wrote about it. Seriously, think about this. He started covering the NFL in 1963. 63! Kennedy was the president. And Vito's been writing about it ever since. He's in the Hall of Fame. He was there when the Colts left Baltimore and went to Indy. He was there when the Dolphins finished their perfect season in 72. He was there throughout the 70s for the Pittsburgh Steelers when they were as good as any professional football team ever. Vito Stellino is our guest today on Pressbox Access. You're going to hear some good NFL stories. Vito, welcome to our show. It's an honor to have you on as a guest. Uh, good to be here. I oh, appreciate it. Yeah, well, man, what a career. Let's think about this. You started in 1963. That's amazing. I mean, John Kennedy was the president when you started writing about sports. And you're still writing, Vito. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, it, uh, uh, the years have kind of flown by. It's hard to believe it's, it, it, it's been that long. And actually, I, uh, I was in the UPI office the, uh, the day Kennedy was shot because Bill Ford had a press conference to buy the Lions. Wow. And, and UPI had the first flash uh, on, on his wire. So, so uh, I wound up doing some sidebar stuff on that, you know, uh, local, locally. So, it's so you, you actually years. wrote about the Kennedy assassination. Think about that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, we're, we're going to talk a little more lighthearted stuff here. We're going to be talking sports <laughs> and, and what a fabulous career you've had and Hall of Fame career. Um, you know, I'm surprised, Vito, that you weren't in this car showroom in Canton in 1950 when the NFL was born. <laughs> but you are in Canton. Yeah, you didn't quite make that. But you are in Canton because the Hall of Fame honored you with the Dick McCann Award. They honored you 33 years ago in 1989, and you've still been writing about the NFL. You're like the Energizer Bunny. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, Vito, the NFL has been your life. And, you know, you covered the Colts when they left Baltimore. Joe Gibbs' two Super Bowls in the 80s. The dynasty of the Steelers in the 1970s. We're going to talk a lot about that. I wanted to start off, though. You know, a lot of people will not realize you're so synonymous with the NFL, but early in your career, you covered all kinds of sports. You know, you worked for UPI in Detroit and New York. You did like six World Series, Gordie Howe's NHL record goal in 1963. What was it like being a sports writer before you got tied up in the NFL? What, tell me about some of the things that you enjoyed covering back in those days. Uh, well, in those days, the NFL uh, was not very busy in the offseason. Uh, they had uh, a, uh, a three-day mini camp in the draft, and the draft was nowhere near the uh, time-consuming thing it is now. Right. So, uh, uh, so I covered a lot of other things, you know, uh, uh, baseball, the World Series. Uh, uh, covered some uh, tennis at uh, Forest Hills before the current complex uh, was built. Uh, uh, 
covered uh, Bill Badley's first game at the Madison Square Garden. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> well, there's two and, events. Uh, there, there's two events I want to ask you about. Uh, there's one is in 1966, you were actually in Cole Fieldhouse at the University of Maryland for the NCAA championship game when all black Texas Western defeated all white Kentucky. A true moment in history for not just college sports, for all sports. What are your memories of that night covering that game? Well, the funny thing is, uh, the fact it was an all-black team was not, uh, at the time, was not a major issue because three years earlier, Loyola Chicago won the national championship with four blacks. Right, you know? they beat Cincinnati, and, and, right. Yeah, they beat Cincinnati. And uh, in their first game, they had to play Mississippi State, which, which had to like sneak out of Mississippi because they were supposedly banned from playing an integrated team. And there's a famous picture of uh, one of the uh, Loyola players shaking hands on the Mississippi players. So uh, being there that night, the, the bigger story was, you know, Kentucky was Kentucky and Texas Western was this, you know, it was a David and Goliath type story. Uh, right. They they had uh, I think they only played seven uh, they only played seven players. Uh, David Latin was the was the big star, and uh, so pretty much everybody wrote at the time that you know what a big upset this was that Texas Western had come out of nowhere and knocked off Adolph Rupp's uh, you know Kentucky. So, but then as the years went by. Uh, that that became more and more of a focal point as uh, uh, as there was more integration, the SEC integrated, and and, and uh, you know there there was a, a saying at that time that you played uh, uh, two blacks at home, three in the road, and four if you were behind. I mean, you think about the times. I mean, you were literally right in the middle of the civil rights movement, and. Like you said, maybe the history didn't hit you at the moment, but do you remember anything about the atmosphere in the arena or the game itself that still sticks with you? Well, uh, I remember, uh, you know, Coalfield House was packed. It was not in a, you know, a big dome stadium. It was a, 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 an average uh, college uh, field house. And uh, I, I just remember... Uh, Texas Western uh, had a lot of turnovers. They, they stole the ball from Kentucky. Uh, right. Uh, and uh, one of the, uh, uh, Louis Dampier was one of them. And, and then uh, Pat Riley was a guard on that team too. That's right. And right. so they had a lot, a lot of steals. But I remember after the game, being in the locker room, just sitting down to with some of the Texas Western players and just talking to them one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, nowadays, it's a press conference of 300 people and it's a formal press conference and microphones and all that. Right. At, at, at that time, you just went in the locker room and uh, talked to whoever you wanted to. And uh, the Texas Western uh, players were an interesting story because they were not, like, highly recruited, uh, you know, and... Uh, so the you know they talked about their background and and uh, so I, I remember that particularly that uh, Vito did the African American players recognize after the game when you interviewed them what they had accomplished not just in winning the game but but the statement that it made 
You know, they may recognize that, but they didn't talk about it. Uh, maybe because we didn't ask them uh, about that uh, issue. It was more that they were the David and Goliath. Uh, their, their players had not been heavily recruited. Some of them came from New York. Uh, uh, you know, go, going all the way to Texas, uh, which was unusual in those days. So the, the conversation was just more about the, uh, the background of the players. Right, right. Well, it was certainly a, a you know a great moment in sports um, for the progress of our society and and, and sports and in, in general. And you were there. You were there in the arena. You were also there in the arena for another historic moment in sports, and that's in 1971 when Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali fought for the first time in Madison Square Garden. It was then called the fight of the century. What do you remember about that night in the garden? Uh, well, I mean, all the celebrities uh, that were there. Frank Sinatra was uh, taking pictures, you know. Wait, wait a minute. Sinatra uh, was, he was a photographer that night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember, what I remember the most is that uh, my assignment was the Muhammad Ali press conference after the match, you know. Right. Which was... Which was the cover of the assignment. You know, I wasn't really a boxing writer, so, uh, but that was the thing to cover because he was such a, you know, Muhammad. He was Muhammad Ali and he was going to say all kinds of things. And, you know, so I'm looking forward right, to it. Right. You weren't going to be lacking. You weren't going to be lacking for quotes that night, Vito. That's for sure. Well, uh, Muhammad took such a beating in that, in that match that he did not come out for the press conference. So instead of Muhammad, we got Bundini Brown. <laughs> so I went from having uh, what would have been a great story to uh, a press conference with Bundini Brown talking about the uh, about the fight. And uh, uh, I don't think people remember that now that, that Muhammad didn't even uh, you know come up for a press conference, which was so unusual for him because he loved the spotlight. Right. But as I say, he. Uh, uh, he may have fought him too soon. You know, the, the three and a half years, uh, he, you know, he was rusty. And uh, the amazing thing is he came back and won the other two. Exactly, and, uh, yeah, yeah. But actually, they, uh, of course, then he kept fighting and the toll it took on uh uh, the toll it took on him. And uh, it, it actually, in the end, became kind of a sad story. Yeah, but, sure uh, did. I mean, you think about that. That fight was so brutal that Frazier, the winner, was immediately taken to the hospital, and he was the winner. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was just amazing. They, uh, you know, and they went fifteen rounds then, and uh, he he finally knocked Ali down at one point. I think late in the fight, you know. It, uh, but yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, it, it was just brutal, and. Uh, uh, and it was such an event, but on the other hand, you have all these second thoughts about the price those guys paid for those three fights, you know? Right. So, and of course now boxing, nobody even knows who the heavyweight champion is, you know? 
it's really changed. Exactly you know? right. I mean, there was a time when when it was all baseball, boxing, and horse racing. You know, back in those days, and now, I mean, it's the NFL's world, and we're just renting space. And and you've been there throughout the growth of the NFL. Literally, I mean, when you started in 63, before you went into the Army for a couple of years and came back in 66, in 63, you, you were part of the biggest story of the NFL that year, the suspension of uh, Alex Karras and Paul Horning for gambling, and you were working in Detroit, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I was just luckier. I just happened to be often in the right place at the right time. And so the NFL called called us to alert us that they would make the announcement like at, say, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I forget the exact time. So I drove out to Karras' house, which, you know, you know the kind of houses that players live in now. This was a block yeah. of houses, all, all the same, very middle class, maybe even lower middle class neighborhood. And of course, there were like no a row, like a row, like it was like a row house, like like a row house. Well, no, there were separate houses. They weren't row houses, okay. but they were very very modest houses. And right. so then I ha I had you know no uh, no cell phone, so then I had to go in a parking lot and call the the office to find out what what happened, you know, before I actually arrived at the house, because I didn't know what to say. Well, I got, you know, they told me he's suspended, so I drive to the house and ring the doorbell, and I still remember uh, his wife came to the door wearing a dress. In those days, women wore dresses even at home, and this little girl was, like, holding the hem of her dress, and she was crying, and he had already mm. left for the uh, for the stadium, so uh, so then I had to get back in my car, drive down to the stadium, and I remember Karras, you know, he, he was really uh, he was really furious. Although he he did a TV interview, which was one of the most ill-advised things you can imagine. We really virtually said he had gambled, but. You know, he'd gamble small amounts, didn't think it was a big deal. And, uh, <laughs> Just a little so, bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, anyway, he was so bitter. I'll still remember the quote. Uh, he said, uh, I can go, uh, I can go back to, I think it was in Gary, Indiana, and work in the steel mills uh, for all the steel I can eat. You know, that, that uh, oh, wow. uh, he, he was, he, he was very upset. But, uh, well, Horning, Horning anyway. was at the end of his career, but Karras, Karras was like the defensive player in the league that time, right? Well, no, he was, he was still, uh, you know, 62 season. He was still uh, at the top of his game, you know. Right. It, uh, no, I mean, it was like the best offensive player and the best defensive player in the league were, were being suspended. Now, you can argue maybe he wasn't the best offensive player. I'd say one of the best because obviously Jim Brown was in the league at the time. But, uh, uh, but, but Karras, uh, uh, we were focused on Karras all along because he'd gone on TV. The Horning thing came out of nowhere. We had no idea that he was even being investigated or anything like that. And, uh, in fact, we found out later that Roselle called Lombardi to come to New York, and he told him, hey, here's the evidence. And Lombardi said, hey, you have no choice, you know. And so, uh, uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, uh, that that was kind of like the first major national story that I was involved in. Well, you mentioned uh, you you mentioned uh, the young 
at the time, very young commissioner, Pete Rozelle, when Karras and Horning were suspended. And Rozelle really shepherded the league through the 60s and into the growth that it enjoyed through the 70s. But, you know, in 1970, when they started Monday Night Football, that was like a risk, right? You were at the press conference when they were going to unveil this this show, basically, a Monday night game. But that wasn't like a guarantee. Now it's just part of our culture. But when you were there writing about it, what did you think? It was a risk? Well, I, I, uh, I wasn't attuned to TV the way we are now. Uh, it turned out CBS and NBC turned it down. And, and CBS right. only, uh, and ABC only took it because Roselle threatened to put it in syndication and, and ABC was worried that their, their stations would, uh, uh, you know, defect uh, to, to, get, to get that game. So, yeah, we, we didn't really think it was that much of a risk. We, we didn't realize the whole implications. In fact, uh, today, you know, they announced all the figures and, you know, I, I still remember Roselle he would not give the figures. He just said it's bigger than a bread box. You know, that was, that was his line. So not, and I didn't know about prime time and, you know, all that kind of stuff in those days. So I just took the average of what they got for a Sunday game and then figured, you know, time to buy 17. And, and Bino Cook, the great, late, great Bino Cook, who was one of the great characters of all time, he called me up and said, hey, you're way low. They got a lot more than that. It's, it's prime time, you know. So that, that's how I learned how valuable it was. And, uh, right. Uh, no, uh, had it not been ABC, had it not been Rune Arledge, had it not been Howard Cosell, I don't know that Monday Night Football would have ever, uh, became the thing it became, you know. Uh, our, our Yeah, because they had, they had, they had tried like Saturday, didn't they, didn't they try Saturday night? Uh, football, like a, a game in the late 60s, and it really just didn't do well. Yes, they had Green Bay versus Baltimore, which at the time was uh, Lombardi versus uh, Shula, Saturday night, and it lost in the ratings to the Miss America contest, if you can believe that. <laughs> wow, so that's why think about that. The networks, the, the networks weren't that eager to give up their regular programming uh, in prime time, you know. Uh, right. I mean, you guys, say, you have Johnny Unitas playing, you have Vince Lombardi on the sidelines, Shula, <laughs> and it can't beat out Miss America. I mean, that shows you where football was in those days. <laughs> yeah, it, it's absolutely, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, but I don't know that without Arledge and Cosell, it, it became, it became a thing. I mean, you know, the, the, they arrived in the town, there'd be a luncheon, it, it was an event, you know, and, you know, Cosell, right. half the country hated him, half the country loved him. And the very first game was the Jets and the Browns, you know, Joe Namath. And during the game, Cosell said that Leroy Kelly wasn't having a compelling game. In, <laughs> in those days, you know, you didn't say anything, anything negative. And, and, and that sentence became controversial. That, really? I mean, they, in fact, uh, some of the owners wanted Cosell taken off the broadcast. Compelling and, was a controversy. Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know everything was all you know all upbeat, but uh, but yeah, he he made an event, and of course, the pairing him with uh, Don Meredith was perfect. Uh, they bounced off each other, right. and uh, uh, it, it, it began. Oh, and then the, the halftime highlights again. No ESPN, uh, internet, all that. Uh, 
he would add, he would they would show halftime highlights of the uh, you know because people hadn't seen the highlights there were no highlight shows you know maybe the uh, the Sunday night local broadcast might run a few you know clips right and, uh, and the amazing thing is Cosell would ad lib them you know uh, they, he would not write a script they would you know run the thing he would ad lib it and. People would get mad at Cosell if they're, you know, they couldn't show clips of all of all the games, and they had to they had to show the two teams that were on the next week, you know, and uh, and plus some of the bigger events, and so people would complain to Cosell, oh, you know, he's not showing our team, that type of thing. Well, right, NFL right. Films, Everybody was always mad at Cosell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, NFL Films was the. Uh, they made all the decisions, picked the thing. He just, but it's amazing that he could ad lib those those highlights like that, you know. Well, I think Monday Night Football. I think Monday Night Football in those days really was the start of where we are today with the league in terms of extravaganza, show, entertainment. It's so different. But but when I look back on when your career began. You know, football was so different. I think if there's a city that really embodied how different it was, it was Baltimore. And you had Baltimore and the Colts. And later on in your career, you covered the Baltimore Colts when they left town in 1984 for Indianapolis. Can you give us some context about the love affair that Baltimore had for the Colts before they left? Yeah, Frank DeFord wrote a book about, uh, he was from Baltimore, a novel about this kid that somehow got uh, a dozen cold tickets. And and he used those tickets to like, want of them to get into college, uh, to get a job, and you know, just how valuable the cold tickets were. And, uh, you know, in, in 58, they played the famous game against the Giants. Right. Uh, United became, became the face of the league. Uh, one of my friends once said, uh, the NFL wasn't important until Johnny Unitas made it important. Wow. You know, which, which I think really summed it up. And yeah, and Baltimore up till then was kind of the whistle stop between Washington and uh, and Philly and, and New York. Uh, uh, so, they, you know, they, they had lost the uh, baseball to the Yankees. They, I mean, went to New York and the Baltimore Orioles, the original, went to... Uh, New York became the Yankees, so they didn't get baseball back until 1954, uh, just a few years right. before the. the, the uh, and, and people don't know this either. In 1952, a team failed in Dallas. They literally went bankrupt and moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and finished out the season as a. Think road about that. Team. Football, wait a minute. Football failed in Dallas. Think about that. In Dallas, in 1952, you know, this shows you how. Uh, uh, it's why, which which in a way led to the uh, uh, formation of the AFL because uh, they would not give Lamar Hunt a franchise. They they were very wary of expanding because they knew about you know Dallas just happened a few years earlier and they were wary about you know uh, surviving. Right. And uh, but anyway, so the Hershey team moved to Baltimore. I think in '53. And became the Baltimore Colts, you know. So right. there were still some of the players like uh, Art Donovan had played in. And in fact, George Young, who later became the general manager of the Giants and one of the iconic figures in league history, he played uh, uh, there too. And uh, 
So they moved to Baltimore, and then they start winning, and they, uh, the city, uh, you know, just embraced them. And uh, uh, so the whole decade of the, of the from 58 to like uh, 72, it was just amazing. Right. But then uh, Carol Rosenblum uh, made a swap with uh, – uh, with Bob Ursay, and he got the Rams. And, uh, yeah. and I still Ursay love that they swapped the franchises. <laughs> yeah, think about that. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, well, see, uh, Carol was such a a, a a maneuver that he uh, he wanted to swap them. He didn't just want to buy the Rams because he would, if he sold the Colts, he had to pay. Uh, a state tax, or, or no, uh, what kind of tax? Anyway, uh, some kind of medieval tax. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, he had to pay tax on the property made on the sale because right. uh, even though we're near, I think it sold for. I think Ursay paid sixteen million, which is amazing today. You know that uh, yeah. you can't buy a player for that today, but. Uh, but anyway, and then Ursa just ran it into the ground. And by yeah, so you said, so, yeah, so you have Robert Ursay who takes over this team that's such a part of, uh, you know, it's the fabric of the Baltimore. I mean, the players for a long time actually lived in the neighborhood. They worked jobs in the offseason. The Colts just became the neighborhood, came, became the town. And then Ursay comes in and things are changing in the league. And he's a different owner. And next thing you know, it's March 28th, 1984. And Robert Ursay and the Colts are literally packing up moving vans and heading in, heading out to Indianapolis. And you're there, right? You're there to witness this. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, the moving... Well, I mean, it had been rumored uh, that, that they were going to move. Uh, or, or, in fact, uh, uh, Ursay, uh, he had a press conference when I was at the Super Bowl denying that they were going to move. Of course, he... he, he he had, he had been in Phoenix uh, before he came to Baltimore to deny it. In fact, I, I wasn't there, and he said, well, where's the tall Italian guy? You know, but it was at night, so, so he, he was he looking was for you. Yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, anyway, that night, the, the moving vans start pulling up. The reason that they moved in the middle of the night was uh, the— the city of Oakland came up with this idea of eminent domain that they could they could take over the the uh, uh, the Raiders because you know they moved to uh, uh, Los Angeles in '83, mm -hmm. and so then uh, Baltimore got the idea. I, I'm not so sure Ursay would have moved uh, because. Uh, you know, he was all he was. He wasn't the sharpest operator in the world. I don't know where he did something that bold. Mm -hmm. The team then was huge. Hadn't happened a long time. And the Raiders was considered an outlier because it was Al Davis, and you know, Al he lived by his own rules. Right. Anyway, so we got some calls. Hey, something's happened in the Colt Complex. So I go out there, and uh, and these moving vans were there. 
uh, it was snowing, sleeting. It was kind of a real, uh, surreal scene. And these moving bands started moving out. And we didn't know where they were going, you know. Wow. <laughs> you know, but that's why I did it at night. He was sneaking out of town so they couldn't use eminent domain, which as a legal theory never held any water anyway. It, uh, did, uh, did word yeah, spread? So, uh, did word spread that night? Did people show up? Fans? What? I mean, was oh yeah, it, was there, our, there were yeah, there were some fans there because you know you know a dozen moving bands all of a sudden rolled down the street. Uh, it caught people's attention. Yeah, so there were people there. Uh, they wouldn't let us into the complex, you know. So all we could just do is uh, just wait and yell to drivers, "Where are you going?" That type of thing. Of course, they didn't. They didn't say it. Uh, and the people who did the packing were, were like a bunch of college students, mm. you know, and uh, I, I forget who, who lined them up. And the moving vans, the, they're the Mayflower moving vans, did not help Mayflower's business in Baltimore after that. Although, Oh, I bet. <laughs> the, the, the vans were not from Baltimore. They, they, had, they had driven down, I, I forget, from, uh, uh, from where they had... Uh, it was a town, I think, in Pennsylvania where they, they, they came from. Right. And uh, so, I mean, that was just a devastating thing in, uh, in, uh, in Baltimore to lose the Colts. You know, it, it, uh, the NFL did nothing to uh, stop it. And then six months later, the uh, Eagles tried, to, uh, Leonard Toast tried to move the Eagles to Phoenix. And all of a sudden, the NFL swoops into action. You know, and, and they managed to block that move. So at a, at a press conference, I said, hey, wait a second. Six months ago, you couldn't do anything to stop the Colts from moving. I mean, Roselle gave some kind of answer. I forget what it was. I mean, I understood Philadelphia was the fourth largest market in the country. You know, Baltimore, for all the, uh, the excitement in Baltimore over the team, it was still a, a small market team. Well, anyway, right. a few days later, Roselle calls me at home unsolicited. This is kind of kind of the guy Roselle was. And he said, hey, I understand, you know, uh, just want you to know that uh, if Baltimore gets a stadium deal, uh, you know, they're going to get an expansion team. Well, what happened was they had a, a labor dispute with uh, the with, uh, the players was lasted like ten years, and and Roselle wound up uh, retiring, and they got Taglibu and uh, and and Godell, and they wanted to go to to uh, to new markets, and so they didn't get an expansion team. Although the deal they had was so good, the four teams were ready to take it, and and the Browns mm -hmm. were the first uh, when the Browns were willing to move. Uh, John Moog, who was leading the Baltimore effort, he signed a deal with them on a Friday, and uh, it didn't leak out for about a week. Do you think if Roselle had not retired, and Baltimore would have got a, they would have got a franchise, a new franchise? An expansion franchise, which, when you yeah. think about it, means Cleveland would have had nowhere to go. So in some yeah. ways, do you think Roselle's <laughs> retirement led to the Browns leaving Cleveland? It could have been, although Modell was desperate at that time. 
uh, he had uh, uh, he had taken over the stadium, which was an old stadium, which needed millions in renovations, and and he was not a good businessman. Uh, the budget, his son once said, the budget was like the uh, with the checkbook. You know, <laughs> it, uh, in fact, the year before they they signed uh, uh, Andre Risen to a five million dollar signing bonus. And the banks wouldn't give Modell the five million dollars. He had to really hustle around right. to 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 uh, you know get the five million. So what would have happened that to the Browns? I don't know. But Baltimore would have got an expansion team. Although as it right. turned out, uh, they uh, did an expansion team. They got Ozzie Newsom, and then they got uh, Steve Bisciotti as an owner. Uh, so they won two Super Bowls, and meanwhile the Browns have struggled. So it it, it didn't. Uh, in the end, and they got this great new stadium. Uh, also, it affected Major League Baseball because had the Colts not moved, they probably would have built a combination stadium, which was the which was the rage in those days. You know, Philly, Cincy, Pittsburgh all had those right. baseball football stadiums. So because they moved. Baltimore, the call, the Orioles said, "Hey, we don't want a combined stadium. We want our, you know, we want a, a baseball-only stadium." And they designed Camden Yards, which changed the stadium before Camden Yards was Comiskey Park—a very bland. Uh, uh, even though it's a baseball stadium, and then none of the retro amenities that Camden Yards had, which which became popular throughout the league, so. Uh, it also had a huge effect on uh, uh, on the Orioles too. So it, yeah, the Colts uh, the Colts leaving Baltimore had such a cascading effect on, as you pointed out, not just the NFL but even into baseball. Uh, I do think, in my mind, the Colts being in Baltimore is that old era NFL. I mean, that's kind of, for me, like a dividing line because then you started having all kinds of franchises moving and the growth of the league. I mean, we've had, it's a $12 billion annual revenue business now, the NFL. It certainly wasn't like that when you covered your first Super Bowl, which was, I believe, Super Bowl Seven. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. 1970, yeah, January they, of 1973. The uh, Dolphins yeah, completed their perfect season by beating Washington. So it wasn't like that in 1973, January oh, of 73, oh, right? Oh, no, no, no way, no way. Although Dan Rooney's uh, once said to me, we were all, we were all better off. When we were making, I forget the figure the teams were making X and and the players were making X. You know, he was one of the few owners who did not think that uh, uh, increasing the revenue and 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 of course now it's totally out of control. It, it, it's all about marketing. Roselle used to say to his minions, "Remember, we kick off at one o'clock every Sunday. The message mm-hmm. being, we're we're a football league. The important thing is." Is football and what's good for football. Now it's what's good for making money and uh, and marketing and all those kind of things. And uh, right. I think it's uh, it, uh, you know there's all saying in showbiz. Uh, you always want them to come back for more. You don't want to say you don't want them thinking, "Geez, this ever going to end?" Type of thing. And I think they're getting close to that. You know, the, the, the season going on for you know, into mid-January and, and, and that type of thing. And, you know, 17 games, I think, oh, that's great. Well, what if you're 1-15, you know? 
That, not so uh, great. <laughs> not so great. <laughs> not so great. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. Right. But it started to become big in the seventies too. You know, the seventies mm-hmm. was a great era, which kind of set the table. You had the Steelers winning four. You had the Dolphins winning two. The Cowboys winning two, and then losing two Super Bowls. The Steelers, the only time the team of the decade was decided on the field. So right. I mean, it was a it was a decade of. Uh, I mean, the Raiders only won one, and they were still an iconic uh, uh, team. You know, it was yeah, never, yeah. And the Vikings uh, got there four times and didn't win. They yeah. got there four and didn't win. You know, so uh, it started to build in the uh, uh, in the seventies, and the Super Bowl became bigger each year. You know, well let's, realize, well, let's talk about that. Well, let's talk about that decade of the 1970s. I mean, you covered those Pittsburgh Steelers teams. You were around them daily. They won four Super Bowls in six years. They were the team of the decade. They still might be the the best team ever. Did you realize at the time how great of a team that was? Not just the fact that they were winning, but that that you were covering an all-time team. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, When they won the first two, uh, and, I, and I wrote this and it kind of ticked off some people in Pittsburgh. Uh, I said, to be great, to be considered great, you've got to be considered like Lombardi or the Cleveland Browns of the Paul Brown area. You've got to win at least three, you know. And, uh, <laughs> Never enough, Ito. <you> know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so in 76, uh, they... they which they, they still think may have been their best team. They had like five shutouts. Uh, they got off to a bad start, but then they won the last nine regular season games. They just blew up Baltimore and Burr Jones in the first game. But in that game, uh, Franco and Brocky were both hurt. So they go to Oakland with only one healthy running back, you know, Reggie mm-hmm. Harrison, and they lost. So they, you know, and then the next year they had what Noel called your distractions. They had guys holding out and, and, uh, uh, so they didn't win again. So then I started to think, you know, maybe it's a two-year uh, deal. But then the funny Make thing the is... the windows up, yeah. Uh, to, uh, to neutralize the Steeler defense, in effect, uh, in 78, they passed like, the, uh, you know, no bumping the receivers after five yards. That was the beginning of opening the, uh, opening the game up. Well... So the, the interesting thing about what the Steelers did, they won two with one set of rules and two more with the other set of rules. Yeah, right. I mean, think about the, it. Yeah. The, the last two, Bradshaw throwing the swan and Stallworth, you know, uh, they became much more of a passing team. He, he threw for 300 yards in, in, the, in the last two Super Bowls, you know. Uh, first one, I think he threw for 129 or something, you know, Super Bowl nine, wow. you know, so. The entire but, but, game, but right? They, <laughs> but they had the talent to adjust, and, you know. But, uh, yeah, so once they won three, uh, you know, the, the, then I was saying, hey. This then is they met veto standards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, on a, fact, on a daily basis. I, I did, on I did, a da- oh, I was going to add another thing. Uh the amazing thing about that team too is they, they didn't make the money that they made to uh, make right. today. Or t- today, the big deal is getting your your uh, second contract. You know, 
Well, that mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, they, in fact, the rookies were making less than the sports writers in those days. They're making less than 20000 a year. <laughs> it, it, it was amazing. That's, that, yeah. that's pretty amazing. <laughs> but, but so, so winning, I'm not saying I want to win now, but winning was like added an importance. They, in that run, they only lost one game to a team that finished below 500. You know, I mean, if they were supposed to, they lost to, you know, Oakland on occasion and that, you know, but uh, they were supposed to beat you, they beat you. And I remember they lost a game in Cleveland and I went and they took a bus in those days, Cleveland's not that far. And driving back, I wasn't on the bus, but I was told this story. One of the players said, what's Vito going to say about this? <laughs> <laughs> You're like the conscience of the Steelers. <laughs> yeah. Well, the great Steelers, those great Steeler teams were led by Coach Chuck Knoll. They had nine Hall of Fame players. We're talking Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth. Those were the offensive guys. And then you get to the defense and you get the Steel Curtain, led by Mean Joe Green. And you got guys like Jack Ham, Mel Blount, Jack Lambert. Think about it. Think about the talent on that team. And yet it was also different. You you were around these guys like every day and you could you could just talk to them, right? Unlike today. So tell me what it was like to cover the team on a daily basis. Well, it was amazing. Uh they they were uh uh they were very uh they were still interested in, in, in getting coverage. They let you in the locker room before practice. They let you in the locker room after practice. And, you wow. know, there weren't, all the, there weren't all those people in the locker room. So you could go up to uh, uh, Terry Bradshaw and just sit on the bench next to him and, and just chat with him, you know. And, and mm-hmm. you, you were just part, part of the scene, in fact, one time I missed a couple of days in Bradshaw. I said, "Where were you?" You know that, that type of thing. They're just so used to, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know. Where's you Vito? Have one you could have one-on-one chats with them. You know, it wasn't like you know it's all press. I mean, nowadays the quarterback talks once a week. It's all press conference type stuff, and and uh, yeah. So it was just a uh, it was just a different feeling, and and in fact, I don't think they realized themselves what a national team they had become. You know, uh, hmm. they, that's when they became a national team with fans all over the country uh, because they were on Monday nights a lot, right. you know, and all the playoff games. And, uh, but uh, there was still that feeling, hey, they were Pittsburgh, you know, the Cowboys became America's team. They were big on, hey, we're Pittsburgh's team, that, that type of thing. Hmm. And, uh the guys are very down to earth type of type of thing, you know. It, right. uh, in fact, on the field one time, Mel Blunt uh, thanked me for writing an article about him, you know, during practice. Uh, wait, wait a minute. This, he this he thanked you for writing an article. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the, you know they had none of the the national coverage that you know there was no ESPN uh, featuring them all the time and and that type of deal you know so it was a very so so he thanked you for writing an article yeah Mel Blanc came over the sidelines and said on the sidelines he said oh thanks that was a nice uh, nice story that type of thing this guy's a hall of famer although I have to say that that was early in his career he wasn't uh, uh, and then 75 he wins MVP has 10 interceptions uh, you know and in effect uh, they they often call the the five yard bumping rule uh, 
the Mel Blunt rule because until then you could hit the receiver all over the field until the ball was thrown. So I mean, he was fast. He was six three. He was big. Right. I mean, he could just he he could uh, knock receivers off their routes and that type of thing. So Vito, Chuck Noll, the coach, what what was he like to deal with as a writer? Uh he liked being invisible. He, he would he would do a press conference on Monday, and then he would do a press conference uh, uh, after the game. And during the week, uh, you know, if you really wanted to ask him something, but but he didn't have a hold all these coaching press conferences that you have today. His big thing was talk to the players, and because. The players were really good talkers. Most of them were, except for Franco. Uh, we were just, and they gave you so much locker room access that uh, uh, we, we really didn't deal with Noel that much. It's hard as it is to believe, you know, because uh, you had so much access to the players. But he, uh, uh, he just liked to stay in the background, you know. He, he, he had no interest right. in promoting right. himself, you know. And uh, he would. Uh, he That's was really interesting. I heard a story once that Noel actually declined to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Is that right? Yeah, Paul Zimmerman did a two-part series on him uh, near the end of the run, and he, you know, he invited Zimmerman to his home. I mean, he he understood that you know if they wanted to do it, uh, he would cooperate. But then they wanted to shoot a cover, and he said no thanks. You know that. Uh, wow. Uh, he. Uh, he he had the self confidence that he didn't need you to think he was a good coach. You know he knew he was, and uh, and, and he was like a teacher. That was his big thing. Bradshaw called the plays because he had been a messenger guard for Paul Brown, and he preferred the quarterback. You know that figured he, he had taught him all week long, and then on Sunday was the exam, and Bradshaw would call the plays and 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 that type of thing. So. But uh, you know they call him. In so if, if Noel if, if Noel wasn't so if Chuck Noel wasn't talking, like who was like the spokesperson for the for the team? Uh, in effect, Joe Green was. He was one of the great quotes of all time. Uh, you had to talk to Joe Green after every game. I mean, Noel would have a press conference, but Green would often have be more much more quotable than uh, than Noel. Uh, so mean Joe Green liked to talk to writers. That's interesting. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. He he was not. Uh, uh, oh, he could be mean in, in the pile, you know. But but uh, no, he was great with writers. And in fact, one <laughs> yeah, time I'm talking, yeah. To, yeah, one time I'm talking to him one on one, and uh, he was mad at the officials, and he made some derogatory thing. I forget what he said was. He got fined for it, but I did not have it on tape. He could have denied it. And, you know, the next day he said, yeah, hey, I said it, uh, you know, he stood by it, that type of thing. He was a stand-up guy, you know. Wow. And, of course, then wow. the Coke wow. commercial made him a national figure, you know. That, uh, But he was the leader of the team. And in 74, when Noel uh, uh, started to Gillum the first uh, six games, uh, that could have caused a... Uh, locker room problem he he stood up for Bradshaw you know he I recognized Bradshaw was still the better quarterback and and uh so that helped him uh get get through that uh, thing he, he he was an amazing team leader he was the leader yeah definitely yeah Vito there's one guy I wanted to ask you about regarding those 
those unbelievable teams that the Steelers had in the 1970s. And that's a guy that's behind the scenes and doesn't get a lot of attention, but his name was Bill Nunn. And he was a scout and later the assistant director of player personnel, an African-American gentleman who really, to me, a lot of people should know more about. Can you tell us about Bill Nunn and the role that he played in putting those teams together? Well, he was a sports writer for a, a black newspaper in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And uh, he, he covered all the, uh, uh, the black colleges. He, he was the, the guru or the maven do everything about the the uh, the black colleges, and uh, Dan Rooney reached out to him because un- until then the Steelers had not you know embraced him much, and and uh, and, and Rooney convinced him to uh, become a scout for them. And, and without Bill Nunn, they don't win four Super Bowls. I don't think. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to start with Stallworth, to begin with. You know, he, uh, uh, Noel actually thought Star Wars was better than, uh, he wanted to draft him first at a Swan, and, and they convinced him, hey, uh, uh, Swan's going to go early, we got to take him first, and then he gets Star Wars on the, on the fourth round, you know. And, uh, uh, mm-hmm. and several other players from, from the black colleges that, I mean, uh, a uh, a free agent, Donnie Shell, he became a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. You know, and he could have signed anywhere. And his coach coach told him, "Hey, you go with the Steelers, you'll get a fair shot." And uh, and that was uh, look at the pictures of the 1973 Dolphins and the 1974 Steelers. Six of the uh, uh, steel curtain guys uh, were black. Most of the uh, uh, no name defense in '73. The Dolphins was white. You know, the, they they opened up. Mm. Uh, they they mined the talent in those black schools before other teams did, and uh, uh, that that helped them. You know, draft ten Hall of Famers, and and Bill Nunn played a huge role in that. And right. he was a very self-effacing guy. He, he was the. Uh, he was the camp uh, director, like, uh, you know, at the front desk. And I remember one year, a, a, the trainer complained about uh, my story about an exhibition game, no less. Mm-hmm. And Bill Nunn popped up and said, uh, hey, the, the story is different from the headline, you know. Wow. I mean, you know, he was a newspaper man. Right. And uh, I guess the trainer just looked ahead laughing, you know, what it said. But, but he... Uh, uh, he didn't like it, and Nunn said, hey, read the story, that type of thing. And, yeah, he was, uh, 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 he was an amazing guy. It's great they put him in the Hall of Fame because he certainly deserved it. Right. Well, you mentioned John Stallworth. I think he's a perfect example. John Stallworth grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Bear Bryant, Alabama coach, didn't even recruit him in his own town. And, yeah, and, and Stallworth uh, ends up going to Alabama A&M, and Bill Nunn finds him because of that. Yeah, and another good story about that is uh, the, uh, there was a concern about his 40 time and none got him alone and got a better time on him and then scooped up the films of it from the school and said, uh, uh, yeah, well, I'll bring these back and, and we'll forward them to the other teams. Uh, well, the, those teams <laughs> right, never left, right. never left the, uh, the Steeler offices. And, and yeah, Stalworth said at the time, 
I think Alabama was integrated by 1974. I'm 1970. I mean, I think they they were integrated. But he said he he was only uh, they were only taking the best of the best. You know, and Stallworth had not been a a star high school player. You know, going to an all black school in Tuscaloosa didn't get much attention. And uh, right. but but imagine that had uh, he goes to Alabama. He's a first round draft choice, probably. You know. Right. So it, well, John Stallworth, John Stallworth was certainly fast enough in January of 1980, the Steelers' fourth Super Bowl appearance that that decade of the 70s. They had won three. They're going for their fourth, but they're trailing. They're losing to the Los Angeles Rams at the Rose Bowl Stadium, 19 to 17, with about I don't know a dozen minutes to go in the game. It's third and eight. And that sets up a play that means a lot in your memories of Super Bowls, right? 70, slot, hook, and go. Uh, and Noel sent the play in. It had not worked in practice well. Uh, Swan was hurt, so they're double covering uh, uh, Stallworth. Uh, uh, so they went, they went deep. Bradshaw took a deep drop, you know, to give Stallworth time to get to the opposing 30-yard line. So they were like at the... Uh, what twenty eight or so, uh, something around there. He, so he threw the ball about fifty yards in the air, dropped right into. Well, you remember the catch? It was in the cover of SI. Mm-hmm. I still think that's got to be one of the greatest plays in Super Bowl history, and it's been it's been almost forgotten because you know, well, just another Super Bowl win, and, and uh, but it was just perfect execution, double coverage. A Hall of Famer throwing to a Hall of Famer. And also, unfortunately, CBS zeroed in close on Stallworth mm. instead of, like, pulling back. It was in the Rose Bowl. Half of the uh, fans were waving terrible towels in the mountains in the background. Uh, it was at night. And the last 30 yards, Stallworth was running alone. Uh, Eddie Brown had made a dive for the ball, missed it, went to the ground. And, and so the last 30 yards... Uh, he's just running all by himself. It was like putting the exclamation point on uh, on the dynasty. That that was like the it was like the last hurrah. And I just think that was so so significant. The blocking had to be perfect for a for him to take that deep drop. You know, in, the, in Super Bowl ten, he threw a game winning pass and got knocked out by Larry Cole as he mm-hmm. threw the ball. That right. was a sixty four yard or swan. But but this was just perfect execution, good blocking, the perfect throw, uh, the perfect route, right into his hands. It was uh, just an amazing play, and for some reason, it uh, you know it, it gets nowhere near the attention of say uh, uh, the helmet catch or the Manningham catch or uh, uh, Burgers throw in the end zone against the Cardinals. You know. The, the, those right. plays get, uh, but but here you're behind in the in the in, in the fourth quarter. It wasn't a drive, one play. It, it, it was uh, it was amazing. And, and as I say, yeah. they now Swan was hurt, but but Bradshaw and Webster, uh, Franco, uh, and Stallworth were all on the field for Hall of Famers and. Uh, uh, well, the Steelers had the Steelers added another touchdown to uh, cement that fourth Super Bowl victory and become really one of the all-time 
legendary teams. You had a Hall of Famer throwing to a Hall of Famer, and you had a Hall of Famer, Vito Stolino, in the press box that night at the Rose Bowl documenting history as you did so much throughout your career. Uh, I want to tell you, Vito, so we thank you for joining us. We've had such fun hearing these great stories. You were there for so many amazing moments. Uh, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for having me on. It, uh, uh, sometimes uh, I get accused of living in the past, but my comment is what a past it's been. I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time, and, uh, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, we've been lucky to have you join us. So thanks again, Vito, and we wish you all the best. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.